conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the CEO and co-founder of Desiem, Nicola Kilner. I had goosebumps listening to this interview back. Um, I'm so proud of it and it may be one of my favourite conversations ever. So for that reason, I want to thank Nicola for her warmth, for her candour and for her strength. Nicola Kilner is a woman who has been through absolute hell yet has somehow remained true to her personal values of kindness and empathy. Nicola began her career as a beauty buyer at Boots in the UK before meeting Brandon Truax, a man she describes as her family, as a genius, and as the best human being she has ever met. The year 2013 saw Brandon and Nicola launch Desiem, aptly dubbed the Abnormal Beauty Company, and in my opinion, the most influential beauty brand of the 21st century. 2016 saw Nicola and Brandon launch The Ordinary under the Desiem umbrella, a brand with what can only be described as a cult following. The aforementioned launch saw the company double its wholesale revenue in 2017. However, those highs were followed by the lows of 2018, a year Nicola describes as not a very kind year. Brandon's mental health and wellness began to rapidly decline. Nicola, then co-CEO, was removed from the company, then brought back months later. October 2018 saw Brandon removed from the company and in January of this year, he tragically passed away. I am in complete awe of Nicola. I was fortunate enough to host a DCM event with her during her most recent trip to Australia And in the time I spent with her, I found myself so affected by her intelligence across both the beauty and the business spaces, but also by her resilience, her kindness and her honesty. As she says in this interview, the world now accepts that kindness can be the way to lead a business into the future. In this conversation, Nicola shares just how Desiem managed to move the beauty industry forward through transparency and through innovation, the legacy that Brandon has left behind, and how Nicola is ensuring she lives and works by her own values every day. Prior to co-founding Desiem, you were a beauty buyer at Boots, one of the youngest ever. Had you grown up wanting to work in beauty? I hadn't grown up always wanting to work in beauty, but I had grown up always wanting to be an entrepreneur or Uh work directly with an entrepreneur. So it was definitely the business side that I think inspired me more. I mean, did you know what an entrepreneur was that young? So I guess... You know, growing up, we used to watch Dragon's Den, which I don't know if it's Ma- Ma- I don't know shark. that we've got is it that shark, yes. shark Tank? Shark here? Tank. Yeah. <laughs> Dragon's Den, Dragon's Den feels more appropriate <laughs> now that you've said it. And, you know, I remember for kind of Christmas and birthdays, I would be asking for uh, different entrepreneurs' autobiographies. So Amazing. that was kind of growing up. I always just liked the excitement of being, I guess, able to create something and kind of having that control. Um, mm-hmm. And then buying was interesting because I think kind of when you're a buyer, you almost kind of have that autonomy on your area where you really yeah. do get to kind of, I don't know, choose the, the products and the price and kind of the range and, and look at all that side of it. But I also think my other kind of part of my kind of thought process in terms of what I would do, I always felt like if you go to a corporate, it's kind of the best education you can get for a few years I think so because actually you really learn what big businesses do well Mm. you learn what big businesses don't do well so that I think then when you go to either create your own business or work with an entrepreneur you can kind of see the things that actually you can really win at and kind of use to your advantage Mm. and they say that about small businesses as well that you should start up with the mindset of being a business a big business makes sense yeah well for us it was about survival (laughs) (laughs) Which we will get to. So knowing that you had, I guess, a passion for business from Mm. such a young age, what is your first memory of beauty specifically? 
Um, so I guess like, you know, most people out there, it's probably my mum. You know, mm-hmm. every every day, even now, she always has a rollers on in the morning doing her <laughs> Amazing. hair. Amazing. Uh, you know, she very... I actually admire my mum, you know, I don't know about you, but I have days where you're like, oh, I haven't washed my hair for a few days. And mm-hmm. I'm just kind of scrolling it on the top of my head in a pineapple. Whereas my mum, I feel like her hair's just done pristine <laughs> every single day. And I don't know if it's a generational thing or, mm. you know, things change. But yeah, my mum always just looks amazing. Uh, she always loved Clinique, actually, skincare. Ah. And occasionally I still see you with a dramatically different moisturizer. And I'm like, Mum, <laughs> we've got other things. You've now. got access to a couple <laughs> of different things, Mum. Like, oh, I know. I just got it. All. It was bonus time. And I'm like, Mum, really? Like, we have oh. all these things now. Well, my mum uses the ordinary. So that oh, maybe that good. makes up for. No, my mum is a big fan of the ordinary. You would hope. So, I mean, I guess it makes sense then that you went on to study business management mm. at university. While you were there, that's when you started working at Boots. Were there any lessons that you learned during that period that you find you still apply today? Um, so I guess I was fortunate. So the, the university course I did, Boots actually sponsored it. So mm-hmm. during my second and third year while studying, I at the same time was on four different placements within Boots. So right. it allowed that when we did the for example, the international module in business management, we then worked in the international team and kind of mm-hmm. got time with all of their decision makers to really understand how it applied in, in actual real day business. Um, you know, for me, university, the first year was really just about leaving home. And I think the independence that comes mm-hmm. with it, which I still think is actually a, a good reason to study, <laughs> study away and kind of lots of fun. But, um, you know, I remember from a university perspective, probably one of the modules that had a big impact was the, you know, this idea of leading and following and the idea that actually every single one of us in our life at every moment is leading and following. And, mm. and you know, it's really having that flexibility to understand whether you're a leader or an, or not. There's times where you follow the people you're leading and, yeah. and vice versa. And I think just this kind of, that made a lot of sense to me. And then I think actually it was a similar time when I had just joined Boots and I'm, I remember I had a one-to-one with kind of the head of trading who, you know, when I kind of was there as a, a kind of student kind of interning, this person was super senior. Mm-hmm. And, and I was, it was during my, my placement within commercial. And I've always grown up wanting to just be a nice person and hating confrontation and just <laughs> believing that the world should be a, a good kind of place. And I think I always kind of had a fear that actually in buying and and negotiation a lot of it's kind of a bit tough and it's kind of mm-hmm. cost price this and can be um a bit confrontational and i remember him talking about this clock face of negotiation and talking about how you know depending on where you are in the clock face and kind of the early part of the clock face is around you're both trying to almost win over the other person and it's all just about the lowest cost price and kind of nothing else really matters and then you have the other side of the clock face where you get to the point where it's really about win-win and about building partnerships and mm-hmm. how you can really grow together. And he was talking about how, you know, the world was changing and he sees the future of buying and um, wanting to be more on the collaborative side of negotiation than uh-huh. the we need to win, you need to lose kind of battle between uh, kind of the major companies. And I think that was the first time I'd kind of heard something and thought, actually maybe like that's the kind of business that I want to be in where it is around Mm. nice and and actually you know true to that I think the world has changed so much where you know the the kind of stereotype you would have of a a leader of a big business 10-20 years ago was someone who was kind of very strict and to the point and blunt and kind of quite harsh and you know I look at myself now and I'm just a happy giggly (laughs) 30 year old most of the time I think I'm about 18 uh, and actually you know Destiny we've got over 800 employees we've got over 300 million dollars in revenues and actually it's just Amazing. nice that the world now accepts that kindness can be the right way to lead mm. a business into the future oh I love that <laughs> I mean I, I'll just stop it there that's beautiful <laughs> so it was while you were at Boots in 2011 that you met Brandon for mm. the first time who was working for Indeed Labs what was it about him that kind of drew you to him? He was just the most magnetic person I've met mm. in my entire life. You know, when someone just, it was, it generally I felt like I'd, it was love at first sight in terms yep. of you just meet someone and you're like, how are you human? Like his <laughs> energy, his passion, his charisma. And then, so anyway, I just remember having this like mind blowing meeting of just in awe of this person. And I think, 
you know, in, in, in a lifetime, I've, I've probably met two people that I would class as a genius. I was going to uh, use the word genius. Brendan's one of them yeah. and actually the second person's Pridvi, who's our chief science officer. Their oh minds just work in a different way. But then they both have this ability of explaining something to you and mm. making you feel like, oh, I really understand that. Even though like, they take the most complex things and just, I don't know, like the way they communicate and think is just um, next level. But then I remember it was more than just the meeting. I re- then remember every email I would get from Brandon, you know, with signed smiles, Brandon. You know, yeah. whereas everyone else is like, kind regards and <laughs> sincerely. And mm-hmm. he was just like, smiles, hugs. And, and actually just... You know, when you get excited when you see someone's name in your inbox and mm. kind of you get back, you see if you're like, I'm going to read that one first. Um, and we had an amazing time whilst he was at Indeed Labs. I was the buyer. We did some great launches together, um, really built a good working relationship. And then he he one day kind of quite abruptly just left Indeed Labs. And I remember hearing and, and actually being heartbroken, thinking, like, oh, no, like I'm not going to get his emails anymore. And I think I'd got to the point where, you know, at that point I'd been at Boots for s- six or seven years. Um, and I'd, I felt like I'd, I'd kind of completed my second education. Like mm-hmm. I'd, I'd learn, you know, and I, Boots was an incredible company. I have amazing experience from working there. And I just learned so much that I was kind of ready to do the next thing. Yeah. Um, and yes, yeah, so then got in touch with Brandon. That's sort of a common thread on this podcast. People have talked a lot about how you get to a point in a role where you're like, I, I've kind of learned all that I can learn here. So where else can I take this? It sounds like that's where you're yeah. at. And also you're just ready for the next challenge. Mm. Like I think, you know, life is such a long time. Yes. That it's nice to have, I don't know, different exciting chapters in it. Talk to me about beauty wise, because I understand that the original plan was to launch two businesses mm. at once. So, one of the things, um, and you probably find this when you work in beauty, uh, I found, I was finding that all of my friends and family were asking, like, so what's the best mascara and what's the best eye serum? Every and single day. And what's the best conditioner? And, you know, I was thinking around the kind of travel industry and, you know, if I go to a new city, you look on TripAdvisor for, okay, what's the best hotel, what's mm-hmm. the best restaurants, kind of what are people saying? Um, so the idea of beauty-wise that I wanted to create was a website where effectively it was ratings and reviews for the product so you could actually go and see yes a kind of um you know independent review of actually how do all the mascaras rank up um so i guess that was kind of what i wanted to start and i'd kind of already done a few bits of research but brandon being an entrepreneur and kind of we'd stayed in touch so we went for dinner and i was like i really want to start this thing and and kind of got his views on it and he was like I love it. Can we do it together? My background software, da da da. And oh, then, uh, but then he was like, and I also want to do Desium. And like, will you come and do that with me? And um, so then it was like, okay, let's do it. Um, let's launch two yeah. businesses. So then, um, so I guess, so we kind of were starting to do both. And, you know, beauty wise, um, we actually still have a lot of the algorithm and kind of oh. the software built. Uh, and actually, some of the designs done too. But the reality was, I mean, it was in progress for a few years and it just there's so much work that has to go into it because of course. you have all of these complexities of I know, beauty products called different things in different mm. markets is it global is it per country very complex yeah. it ends up being um and this year i'm just started to kind of get off the ground quite quickly and kind of started to kind of skyrocket so then it just got to the point where we're like look let's concentrate on Desiem mm-hmm. and then once one day if Desiem's done then we can kind of pick up beauty wise again if um, Desiem's done well yeah <laughs> we can laugh yes. now oh no I would love to hear more about those early conversations when Desiem was still kind of being conceptualized in as little or as much detail as you wish what was Brandon's vision for it you know, Brandon wanted to just change the way things were done in the world of beauty. And mm-hmm. um, Brandon had an extremely good heart. He cared yeah. so much about people, about doing the right thing. Um, and he was, you know, he was from a software world. He was did kind of software at university. He had um, his first business was software. And in the world of software, things are very black and white. And mm-hmm. then you come into the world of beauty where there's lots of different shades of gray. And I think it's the thing that he always struggled to get his mind around that actually how is it how is there such a lack of transparency and um I don't know you know we kind of talk about marketing and 
I don't want to make marketing sound like a dirty word, but I think for a long time some brands used it in the wrong way. Definitely, I um, agree. You know, with marketing that. Ca- can be amazing because people you want to grow awareness, but it's just when marketing mm. becomes too much like trickery that doesn't yes. feel um, fair to the world. Um, and I think you know, Brandon. I guess when uh, when we started Desium, he'd have been kind of early thirties. And I think he's kind of had a few different businesses to kind of learn mm-hmm. a few things and kind of just be ready to do the next thing. But I think one of the biggest things he'd learned was that you really never know what's going to take off, uh, which is why the idea of Desium of like, let's do 10 things at once because actually mm. we can do more for each brand by having an umbrella because he wanted to bring manufacturing in-house, formulations in-house, design in-house, PR in-house. And the reality is, you know, one brand alone, like the chemistry brand, couldn't mm. afford its own manufacturing. It couldn't afford its own lab. It couldn't afford PR in-house. But actually, each brand could afford 10% of that resource. And then he also wanted to create a team that really grows together like a family, really kind of is, is bound together. And he also felt like, you know, from a creative perspective, someone would get bored if they only ever worked on Neod. Yeah. Um, from a design perspective, there's probably only kind of so many different directions you can kind mm. of reinventing it. Whereas actually, if you've got a team that are always working on different brands, they'll stay more inspired and committed. I was going to ask why start with 10 brands, but that, I mean, when you explain it in terms of dividing it up as mm. a percentage, it makes sense. And, you know, even the other idea was if you were flying, you know, all the way to Australia for a, for a meeting with a buyer, well, come and meet 10 buyers at the yes. same time that you're flying over. Let's kind of be more efficient. But I think, you know, the and all 10 brands didn't start together at once. Yeah. It was kind of one at a time. And, and actually, the ordinary was brand 11 that we launched. Yes. It's a good job we didn't stop at 10. <laughs> uh, but, you know, actually, I think from an entrepreneur's perspective, the, the best thing about lo- this kind of multi-brand concept was probably to reduce our risk. Mm. Because, you know, the reality is whatever you... You can love something, but it doesn't mean everyone else is going to love it. Like we yeah. never anticipated the ordinary to become as big as it's become. We would, we never would have said the ordinary would become bigger than Neod because for us, you know, we're skincare obsessive. Neod yes. is everything that skincare <laughs> should be. So then when we see the ordinary, we're like, this is just what insane. Like, <laughs> what, like why, is this, why aren't people being like this about Neod? Um, so I think actually just that ability to spread the risk out of actually trying different things and really allowing the consumer to drive the business by listening to okay what are consumers liking and you know some of the brands where consumers didn't relate so much they've now ended they kind of got put to bed and Mm. you know it's sad when you love those brands because you've kind of given birth to them and you feel very protective but you know you know actually if that didn't work out there's other things we can do so I think it just keeps everything um energetic and fun the risk point is a good one because I spoke to – things just stick in my head. Um, Mariana Hewitt, we were talking about Summer Fridays, and she said – because they just launched with jet lag. She was like, thank God it did well because if that had failed, we would have – that would be the end of the company within six months. So the risk point is a good one. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so many ways in which DCM is completely different from everything else that exists. Launching with 10 brands is one of them. Um I think we use the word disruptive a lot now, but it actually feels appropriate here, particularly within creative industries. But, I mean, you turned the industry on its head. Given how different DCM is to every other company, how did the beauty industry respond when you launched? Was there any pushback there? So, I mean, we started back in 2013 mm-hmm. and the ordinary didn't launch until 2016. So, yeah. you know, I think in the first few years we well look we're still a small player compared to the Mm. the big conglomerates Uh, but I think we cause a bit more trouble for others now but you know in the early days people I think we're looking at interest in terms of this kind of new model this new way of being kind of anti-marketing yeah bringing everything in-house and I think there was kind of interest from everyone but I think it was when we really launched the ordinary where we probably started to kind of poke a few more bears (laughs) yeah um and you know when I think about the ordinary, I remember our first couple of meetings when we presented the concept. Um, one of them with one of the uh, huge retailers uh, in the world, and they were like, "We won't launch." Actually, two two big global yeah. retailers who said they wouldn't launch it unless we changed our packaging. Oh, and what and did we, they want? Um, something that said anti-aging serum. And oh, okay. Serum and uh, and it, you know it was a really hard thing at the time, and I think. 
because we had, you know, relatively okay sales in some of our other brands, you know, we'd got to the point where we could pay payroll quite comfortably mm-hmm. for the next few months. So, uh, you know, Brandon was really like, look, let's stick to our principles. And, it, and, and that's hard at the time when you're saying no to mm. listings with some of the, you know, retailers that can really make or break you. Um, but actually it was, if we had changed it, the ordinary wouldn't be here today. Exactly. It was because actually we stay true to, you know, it's okay if there's any, if, if just a thousand people love us, that's okay. Let's be true to our brand. Let's be true to what we're doing. Um, because the reality is when you get a thousand people to love you, a million people then like, like mm. others follow, but it's just so hard to kind of get that first group who really love you. And I think staying true to actually our transparency of these are the ingredients. Um, you know, we think 10 years ago, no one had heard of hyaluronic acid. Now, no. anyone who's kind of shopping is kind of more f- quite familiar. Niacinamide is our number one selling product out of the whole company. Again, yeah. a few years ago, would people have known the ingredient niacinamide? Probably Absolutely not, not, unless you were kind of an, an obsessive within the industry. Um, so yeah, so kind of just seeing how consumers did actually want people to start talking to them in in honest words. You know, we I think about it when you look in pharmacy. If you have a headache, you go to the pharmacy and you buy paracetamol mm-hmm. and it's five dollars. You would never go into healthcare and see paracetamol for five dollars, fifty dollars, five hundred dollars. Yet of in the course. world of skincare, you can see very similar um, formulations sold from. Ten dollars to a thousand dollars, and actually really struggled to tell the difference between them. So it was almost taking that transparency that's existed in healthcare for a long time and just applying it to the world of skincare. Mm-hmm. That makes so much sense. In 2013, when you launched, you and Brandon were doing a lot of it by hand. I heard even the like the tubes were yes. exploding. <laughs> tell me about that time. What did you learn from having to wear so many hats? So definitely when you're a startup, you, you're wearing every hat from cleaning the floor to meeting with the banks and kind of everything in between. And when we would um, get a purchase order from from kind of a key account, we would say yes, regardless, because we mm-hmm. had to take the order. When the reality was, we didn't know how we were actually going to meet the commitments that we had just said yes to. Um, so it would end up actually with everyone who was in the office in the early days all working in the factory, yep. the factory team working overnight. And again, back then we couldn't afford, like I look at our um, manufacturing facilities now and pff, the machinery is just out of this world. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then, most of it was manual machinery. So like with the, the, the hand chemistry tubes, Brandon and I and a few of the team members, you know, we'd be manually sealing the tops of the tube with this like crimping machine. Right. Except... It only really worked nine out of ten times. Oh, so you then have someone else on the line squeezing the tubes to see if any would explode, how they would, <laughs> which about 10% would. The glamorous life of a business yeah, owner. But you just have to survive. Like, it mm. really is just about survival. Yeah, that's definitely when that word survive comes into play. You mentioned that you had a few retailers saying you need to change the packaging, you need to do this. You are the abnormal beauty company I've never heard a more appropriate tagline or ethos other than those instances have you felt much pressure to normalize as opposed to you know abnormal normalize the way that you operate no I do think we have and I think part of that our team's very much focused on our consumers not our competitors good because I think you know there's always this feeling of there's no point focusing on our competitors because the reality is we have far less money than them. <laughs> so, like, if we look at what they're doing and try and copy, we're only going to do it's worse. It's not an option. So let's just ignore the noise. You know, they're the big elephants where the little rabbit's kind of finding the little holes. Um, so that was kind of really the approach. Let's listen to consumers. Let's focus on kind of just what we're doing and kind mm-hmm. of let the noise be the noise um, around. I guess where we have felt the pressure, um, which is more just coming from, from kind of growth, is the what I call the boring side of the business, uh, which is where we have an amazing COO, uh, Stephen Kaplan, who's just transformed so many parts of the business. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's difficult as you're getting bigger, the manufacturing side, of regulatory, course. legal, kind of all of these things just seem to uh, take more time and you need to have more processes in place. Um, because otherwise, you know, when you start working with big partners, other big retailers, mm. they have systems where you have to conform with, you know, if they have a lead time for delivery you commit and you have to be there on time and um, so really just making sure that our back end was up to scratch mm-hmm. 
you mentioned that the ordinary has just taken on, I guess, kind of a life of its own. I don't think it's a coincidence, particularly from the perspective of an Australian consumer, me. Um, Desiem did kind of grow and explode here in 2016, the year that you launched The Ordinary. You've said that Neod is the crown jewel of the Desiem portfolio, which we will get to, but what is it about The Ordinary specifically that you think resonates with so many people? So I think the transparency on ingredients and I think the fact that the prices are, you know, friendly, they are accessible. I think mm. the fact that, you know, for a long time, consumers had this thought of, you know, if they see a serum at $80, is it going to work for me? Is it not going to work for me? Do I want to spend that much money on a, on a serum and I don't know what the result's going to be? So the fact that actually they have a skincare range where they can see it's very science-led, which, you know, most people kind of, associate science with results yes they can see price points that actually you know this isn't a trade-off now between going on a night out with my <laughs> friends in a skincare serum this is something that I actually can afford to kind of uh, try that's how um, I viewed it when I was in early university am <laughs> I going to buy this moisturizer or am I going to go out on the yeah, weekend like, do you food shop mm. like it's you know people have a limited disposable income mm. um and I think, you know, people just were ready for the transparency in a very confusing industry. Um, and like even working in beauty, I would struggle to see the difference. And, yeah. you know, you start to question, does price point mean efficacy? And what is the difference between these different products? So I think we just kind of came at the right time. And I think one of the things that also really helped us was, you know, the ordinary has really grown through word of mouth. It's been very organic. Right. And I think, you know, the rise of social media and almost kind of the well, influencers, but also the micro-influencers, just the many regular people talking about their skin. And, and, you know, the thing about skincare, it had always been hard to talk about before because because there was almost this kind of restricted transparency on what was in the formulas and how they really worked. Well, how could you really post about the skincare product on Instagram? Because you couldn't really, like, it was like I'm using this miracle cream or, you know, you couldn't say much more about it. Whereas actually now people can say... You know, I've been using the niacinamide. This is how it works. It's really working for me. But I also use vitamin C and that doesn't work for my skin. So yeah. it just allowed the conversation to happen at the same time as social media was kind of allowing conversations to happen in communities to really build. Mm, the timing like between the two is mm. kind of serendipitous. Desiem is still an umbrella company under which several brands lie. I, I guess the most well-known being obviously the ordinary Neod and Hylamide. Can you talk us through the brands that sit under the Desiem umbrella and how they differ from each other? Um, so, yeah, The Ordinary is our biggest brand and that's all about clinical ingredients. Um, that been around for a long time, but very well studied, very eff- um, effective and accessibly priced. Mm-hmm. Neod we see as our technology brand. It's about, you know, you think about Apple iPhone, every year there's a new version. Technology is yeah. constantly evolving. The Neod formulations are always updating. There's always new technologies available. Um, and Neod's really focused on long-term skin health and the integrity of the skin. Mm-hmm. Hylamide is our third facial skincare brand, but that offers more of a minimalist approach. Um, if you want to kind of be less understanding of the science, you can just trust that it has a science in there. Yeah. And you can kind of have a more uh, minimalist skincare regime. We've got the chemistry brand. So this is, again, mm-hmm. using science, but really focused on products for the hand and body. Um, our youth in, um, intense youth complex is incredibly potent. Anti-aging hand cream, one of the best sellers. And you've got things like a tub of hyaluronic acid. So hyaluronic um, concentrate for your whole body. We've got Abnomaly, which is our brand for misfits. Um, so at the moment, we've got our lip um, balms in there. Mm-hmm. We're also launching our store fragrance next year. So a product called Shops, that's going to be an Abnomaly. Amazing. And really, Abnomaly just allows our lab teams to stay creative. So for example, one of the things uh, we wanted to look into was a hyaluronic mouthwash. Now, we're never going to have a dental brand. It wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> but actually, as a one-off product, it's quite an interesting concept. So mm-hmm. it just allows them to kind of explore whatever they want. And it can just fit in the misfits of I Abnomaly. I love it. Then we have um, HIF. So HIF, um, which was our range of cleansing conditions, and we're actually going to relaunch HIF next year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those, again, where 
we kind of the design's amazing the concept's incredible but consumers didn't um i guess relate as much as we thought they would right uh, so what we've done is now just we've taken it down to two cleansing conditioners just in the interim because there are some people that really love the product so we want to keep some available mm-hmm. but next year we'll be relaunching that again as our kind of hair care focus exciting. we have another brand actually which we're about to kind of put to bed temporarily uh, so fountain is our range of beauty supplements in liquid formats you know at destium we really want to stay committed to being at the forefront of science um, yeah and the reality is there's been so much development in the world of nutraceuticals um, and supplements and we've been so busy with everything else <laughs> that I think we want to really look at Fountain and make sure what we are offering is generally groundbreaking and the best of what's available. So that's going to be just put to bed temporarily. Um, so those are the... Well, and then Lufa, which we're properly launching next year at the moment. We've just got one yes, body I wash. Heard, um, yes, But that's going to fully launch next year. So that's going to be... Um, fragrance led uh, bath and body uh, brands so really excited for that one brandon was so passionate about fragrance it was the thing that he truly loved uh, and he handpicked all the fragrances that oh, were in Lufus, so they just smell amazing we're also launching uh, again in january hippu which is a baby brand yes as a mother of a nine month i was about to say girl, how fitting <laughs> very excited for she's using a lot of the lab samples uh, so really excited for that to launch um next year um, so that's the kind of nine brands that we've got now all mm-hmm. coming. There's a couple of other things which are still kind of in the development stage. Uh, so I suspect by the end of next year, we might be back over 10 brands again. Amazing. I think uh, this is an the ordinary specific question, but something you do so differently is this idea of kind of isolating compounds rather than these, you know, big fluffy formulas. Another broad question, but how have you been able to develop such concentrated, high-performing formulas and you've kept that price point so accessible? So the reality is the ingredients in the ordinary are inexpensive to buy. And that's because those ingredients have been around for such a long time. There's so many people that make them. There's less money has to be spent on, you know, marketing of the ingredients and testing because just like paracetamol aspirin you know the claims of vitamin c and retinol and glycolic and lactic are proven like they've been around for so long the molecules pure we know what it is mm. um and i mean across everything at Desium, i think the fact we do it all in-house helps us to really be in yes. control so that keeps everything i think at a very fair price for what you're you're purchasing but then really the difference in the price per brands does come down to the ingredients but the thing that I always try and emphasize is the price point doesn't define the efficacy. Yes. You know, some products in the ordinary might, I mean, they all focus on different things, but, you know, Neod being more expensive than the ordinary does not mean Neod's better. They're just different approaches. And again, if you go back to think about the paracetamol example, I mean, if someone launches a $300 product promising to get rid of your headache, it's new technology, it's interesting, who knows, it might do more, but paracetamol is an incredible, yes. it does what it says, it's very safe, it's very true, so so just because it's, or like water is probably the best thing we could have to hydrate ourselves, yep. it's inexpensive and it's been around forever, so old doesn't mean bad, and cheap doesn't yes. mean bad, and you know, it's crazy in the world, you'll get some things that do less, that do cost more, that's the reality of just different compounds, molecules, nature, um, You've really been able to empower your customers by giving, I guess, this choice back to them through being so transparent. But it can be a bit of a double-edged sword because some consumers are so used to being, I guess, told what to buy and, you know, they see a moisturiser that says anti-ageing and they go, okay, that's what I'll do. How have you made sure that people are still choosing the right products? So, like, for the uninitiated, where does one start? So... Definitely in all of our stores, counters, online, we have highly trained staff me- members, Very team important. members who are really there to help anyone you know we have online chat we have you can email us questions social and um, so we're very transparent in there to help anyone that has any questions mm-hmm. um, and i guess you know when it comes to kind of some of our uh, partner retailers especially online we make sure we have 
as much information as consumers want in terms of if you go on our website, we have the pH of the product. Is it yeah. gluten-free, nut-free, vegan? Just all of this you know, information that people are asking. We have actually just as of this week launched a set called the Everyday Set, mm-hmm. which has got three products in. It's got our squalene cleanser. It has our hyaluronic acid serum and it has our natural moisturizing factors. Amazing. And the idea with this is, again, we're having so many people that are kind of just like, where do I start? Maybe someone's new to skincare. Maybe it's for a boyfriend or, I don't know, your sister, a friend, yeah. your mom. And um, so effectively, it's just a three-step regime that really is suitable for everyone. The idea is that then, you know, if someone starts there, they can then find the, you know, an ingredient more specific to bring in. So maybe if they've got congested skin, they might want to try niacinamide. If they're after anti-aging, they might want to bring in buffet. If they want brightening, they might want to add in vitamin C. And um, if they want protection through antioxidants, they might want to add in resveratrol. So it really allows them then to customize, but as a good starting point. Mm-hmm. In 2017, Estee Lauder came on as a minority shareholder. How did, or not how did, did bringing a multinational into the fold change the way that the business functioned? So it actually changed very little. Um, Mm -hmm. We're very, you know, they came in as a minority and they really respected their position as a minority. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was this really amazing relationship where, you know, they were so complimentary about what we were doing from a brand perspective, from an NPD perspective, from kind of what we're doing um, in all of our in all of our creative channels. And I guess where they kind of helped us was that it really was almost a, um, it was like having a really well-connected uncle who you could bring to get an introduction or a connection to someone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we wanted uh, a contact for, I don't know, a legal company or manufacturer, I don't know, just, you know, maybe the more boring side. I love the uncle analogy. They were just there where we could kind of ask them questions. Amazing. It was in that same year that you launched The Ordinary's first complexion product, a foundation, with a wait list consisting of 25,000 people. Now, the idea of a wait list always fascinates me because people haven't been able to try the product or sample it or read a review. There has to be a lot of trust there to build a 25,000-person wait list. What was it about that product, do you think, or two foundations, that people were so excited about? You know, I think with The Ordinary, really, we grew through word of mouth and it was so organic mm. that I think there was then this kind of appetite for kind of w- what was next. And and I think, you know, at the time, again, because we were doing our own manufacturing, which had amazing advantages, but the downside yes. of your own manufacturing is that we were out of stock a lot of time over a lot of, of products. Course. And that, you know, we definitely didn't plan it, but it definitely <laughs> builds hype because people want what they can't yeah. have. And then I think, you know, when we were launching the colours, I think the fact, you know, the price was like 12, I think 12, 12 Australian dollars. Um, and people had this trust because look, they'd tried the alternate, they tried skincare, they'd thankfully seen amazing results. Mm. But it was almost just the next thing they wanted to try. And, you know, with foundation, it's kind of one of those products where instantly you can just apply it and often feel better. Like, yeah. you know, it helps even out your skin tone. Um, so I think it was just a a product that so many people use and people suddenly had trust in this brand that hadn't overpromised anything. It had delivered on kind of the ingredients. It'd been fair uh, results for the price point. Um, and yeah, they were just excited to see the next product. I've raved about it. It's one of my favourites <laughs> forever. Naturally, this would differ from product to product and I imagine, um, I guess, the development process is probably, I mean, having everything in-house, it's probably an advantage. How long does the product development process take from conceptualising the product through to it being ready for consumers? So it really um, varies quite dramatically between products. Um, So, for example, in The Ordinary, we have, you know, some products like our 100% oils. um, We literally do nothing to them. I'm very honest about this. Like, it's, you know, if it's 100% pure argan oil or 100% mineral oil, Here we it is. source the very best, you know, the best version we can source, but then we really do just bottle it. So yep. from that perspective, <laughs> amazing. you know, probably three months is roughly the time it takes in terms of sourcing packaging, making sure testing's done. Um, you know, you've got all the bacterial testing, regulatory, um, producing the product. And then a Neod product is far more complex, there's more technologies, mm. uh, more extensive testing needs to be done to make sure that they all work well together, what the result is. Um, and that can maybe take more like kind of 
six to nine months. And right. But then you have something like SPF, which especially here in Australia, <laughs> feels like oh. it's years away be with TGA, etc. So whole other ball I mean, game. the process is very complicated. We do what we can to kind of minimise it in as many places as possible. Um, so one thing you'll notice, you know, with the ordinary Neo, there's a lot of common packaging components mm. because packaging is probably one of the things that can really take its time. Uh, which is why any products in tubes always, again, it adds extra onto the time compared to something in the glass bottle. With the with the glass bottles, we've got two different types. We've got the, the amber glass and the transparent glass, mm-hmm. so anything which can be impacted by the sun goes in amber. But effectively, all we then need to produce is the label. Yeah. Uh, and then suddenly that packaging is ready in the boxes we make in Toronto where the product's made, so very short lead time. So Amazing. we do what we can to keep things quick. Mm-hmm. Desium has been described as having a cult following given how loyal and almost obsessive your customers are, which is fair. There's an independently run Desium chat room on Facebook at last count, which is yesterday, 100,000 plus members. They, they aren't even aware because the description still says 85,000. <laughs> and there are multiple Desium discussions that pop up on Reddit each and every day. How closely do you and your team monitor that feedback and are you making product development decisions based on that or are you always kind of thinking of the next thing? And so we monitor it a lot. Um, I'm yeah. personally in the groups, you know, the Joanne who set up the Desium chat room, she's from Spain. I had the privilege of actually meeting her. Oh, she's nice. just yeah, in love with the brands, the products. Um, and actually I'm just amazed every day that there's a community and if so many people willing to share their time and experience. I've never seen anything like it. It literally blows my mind. It's just amazing. And we're very fortunate, like it's a brand's dream to actually have that community. So yeah, super, super kind of um, forever grateful that that exists. But you know, we're constantly monitoring uh, the chatter everywhere on comments on our social, what consumers say to us. um, and, you know, it can spark ideas um, it can spark conversations and um, normally it's packaging things that kind of yep. through the, can you change this? Can this not be a dropper? Um, and, you know, we yeah, we definitely kind of work on things from there. Amazing. I want to handle this as gracefully as possible, but I feel like it's a period that is of huge importance to the brand. So it's worth discussing. 2018. You have personally described 2018 as not a kind year. Um, And I would really like to hear about how your experiences during that time have changed the business and also how they've changed you personally. So, you know, it was kind of the year from from hell. And I think, you know, Brandon to us was more than just a founder. He was, many of us would call him family. We, um, and you know, probably partly, you know, I think a lot of startups go through this journey, but you travel together and like work trips become vacations you kind mm. of had on time you go and explore you're you know going for dinner every night you're texting all day you talk to them more than you know you do your own um actual family members and when and i guess you know when you you kind of know how good someone is how kind they are and how how amazing you know brandon was truly the greatest human that i've ever met in, in this kind of world and then when you see someone become really ill and you're completely helpless about the situation and you know it's it's something that I think in my lifetime I don't know if I will ever understand mental health and how it works but Mm. it's something that I definitely want to dedicate more time to because I think seeing how it just took someone who was so important to us um and you know it was interesting I, I I'd read a piece around this um I guess correlation between founders and mental health from an aspect of you know, he was genius and mm. kind of his brain did think completely different to everyone else's. And, yeah. and you know, does that, I don't know. Um, but it was horrible because we were, we were powerless and, you know, it was quite public what happened to me when, when things were kind of starting to become clear that things had changed and you try and help that person who's your family. And I got kicked out. <laughs> like, yeah. So anyone There's who no was other in way his inner circle it. was being pushed away. Um, so then you had this really difficult dynamic of, you know, people around him wanted to be there to help him. You'd get fired if you were trying to help him. And, and it was just yeah. a really horrible situation to be in. And, you know, behind the scenes, everyone, truly so much was being done to try and help. But it was mm. just, you know, what I look at now is just this kind of situation where you're just completely powerless. And I think you think you know 
again, quite public, he got sectioned four times and you mm. think, okay, surely now, like, there's been medical intervention. The help's going to be there. And it wasn't. And again, the systems just aren't there t- to cope with mental health. I think we kind of really liked, you know, we let down people in this world by not having the mm. right things in place. And I think, you know, what made it also harder was the kind of, which I think is a new thing, which will be, again, a, ch- a challenge, um, especially for people who are struggling, is social media. You know, there was mm. a platform where it was being played out so public. And again, that was so hard for our team because you're seeing comments around why is no one helping him? Like, where are all his loved ones? And yeah. everyone was there, like, in pieces, crying every day, like, just in this kind of complete breakdown with actually no ability to make a difference. Um, you know, the board were, again, tried everything in their power to help, but it was just a helpless situation. And, you know, it got to the point where everyone says, everyone says you have to reach rock bottom and then then it'll kind of turn around. So, you know, there was this viewpoint of when it got to October and, you know, Brandon had said he was shutting the whole company down. Well, suddenly you've mm. got 700 people who, they've got mortgages to pay. They've That's got rock families, bottom. Like, you you know we can't just take that away and actually also this is brandon's baby that he cares so much about and you Mm. know when he gets better we need it still to be there for him so that was when the decision was saying actually let's just kind of allow him hopefully the time to get better by himself and you know everyone who said you reach rock bottom but so you know yeah rock bottom happened and, and sadly it kind of never recovered but you know even when the court order was taken it was always an interim decision it was mm. everyone wanted brendan to come back with open arms he was the founder he was gonna who's kind of taken us to, to the next chapter so horrible in in so many ways that i don't think we can ever kind of fully digest and um, and i think you know what i've really tried to do with the team since then there was you know the people that got pushed out very grateful everyone came back mm. and again that's because their love for brendan and for desium never faltered so during amazing. that time but actually, we had to show everyone kindness again because it wasn't a kind year to the team. People, you know, work should be, a, I believe, work, you know, you spend time there, you want to be something you enjoy. And people were dreading coming in. They didn't know mm. what that day was going to hold. They were watching people that they loved suffer. And um, so really my focus has just been on kind, bringing stability mm. back and really just bringing everything that Brandon made so great about Desium, you know, he believed it should be about authenticity, integrity, creativity, putting consumer first, putting the brand first, and really just making sure that we are continuing to live our values um, every day. Mm. As I'm sure most of my listeners are aware, Brandon tragically passed away in January of this year. Being his best friend and his business partner for such a long time, how would you, I guess, sum up what his vision was and the legacy that he's left behind he wanted to change the world of beauty and you know one of his favorite sayings was things do evolve and eventually planes do fly Mm -hmm. and you know that was almost this kind of magical belief that really the impossible was possible things you know the world is an incredible place and there is no limit on kind of what we could achieve but you know his main view was always let's just be good do good um and always put the consumer first Amazing. My last few um, little rapid fire questions, as I know time is not on our side today. You have been a part of the beauty industry for upwards of 10 years now, which is crazy because you look to be about 21. (laughs) We've seen a lot of change within the beauty industry in that time. I credit Desiem with a lot of those changes, kind of pushing the industry forward. What are the biggest changes that you have seen within the industry in that time? Um, So definitely, I guess... The most, well, I feel like 10 years is a long time, so this is kind of more recent, but just this kind of transparency. Um, and I think actually it's what's led to the rise of so many indie brands because yeah. I think actually the consumers, they they care. They care about where it's come from, who's running it, <laughs> you know, what are the people like? Do they, do they have good values? Are they treating people fairly? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, it's nice that actually the world is becoming a kind of place to live, like I genuinely believe we care more than like more than ever about the planet about each other um so i think kind of that responsibility social responsibility has led to these indie brands coming out and you know probably the transformation of of the internet both from Mm. from a 
retail perspective because actually it allowed a platform for new brands to reach consumers mm. more easily and then through social because again it's allowed the kind of powerful voice to belong with the consumer so i think that really supported this area for indie brands to really break through mm. so that's the changes that we have seen what changes do you think we can expect to see from the beauty industry in the next few years um, so, I mean, that trend, I think, will definitely continue. And I think people will care more about their long-term skin. Um, you know, already definitely in the UK, a few years ago, it was all about colour. And mm-hmm. now it's all about skin. So, even yes. that's nice that people are starting to kind of take more of this kind of, uh, I guess, long-term kind of more um, more view. Mm. Uh, but I think that will kind of go even further. That You know, products like acids, for example, you know, we're very open when we say this if you want to look amazing this weekend use an acid yeah it's going to be glowing but also just respect your skin in terms of you know you can over strip over peel over and that's when you know Niall's really focused on this kind of long-term view of skin health mm. maintaining the skin integrity let's be kind to the skin um and you know it in Asia, I think they're quite focused on on kind of skin health. Uh, so I think it's going to come more and more through. Amazing. I understand that there is a concealer on the horizon and we've touched on there being a few more brands in the works. So Nicola, my final question, what is next for Desium? So yeah, we have concealers launching before the I'm end of so this excited. year. Uh, they're going to be under $10 um, in the same 21 shades, super high pigment. Another product we have launching here, um, which is especially exciting for Australia, so our AHA Peeling Solutions, one of our favourite global products, which sadly regulatory won't let us sell in Australia mm-hmm. or Canada, but we have our pons, um, pomegranate enzyme with willow bark extract, which is going to be a similar impact um, in terms of the, the mask, as that's launching early 2020. Finally, we're going to have SPFs available uh, in mm-hmm. Australia from April 2020. Um, we have Hippie, which I mentioned earlier, yes. Baby Brand, which I'm personally very invested in. But, you know, we've just, Toronto, we've just moved into a new uh, 70,000 square feet head office, wow. which is also amazing because Brandon picked it. You mm. know, he was kind of very vocal when we were kind of planning the space. Um, so, yeah, lots more. We've got over 300 products in development, so lots more MPD coming. That was Nicola Kilner, CEO and co-founder of Desiem, which you can find on Instagram at Desiem. To read my interview with Nicola, you can visit glowjournal.com. And for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at gemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.